So the title of tonight's talk is A Heart Ready for Anything. And this, this title is drawn from a, a writing by the Buddhist writer Tara Brock. And in fact, I'm going to start by sharing this, this writing first with the, the Zoomies. And then with the roomies. So it's a bit of a long piece, and I know that some people, some people are oral readers and can hear it. Some people like to read, so I figured I'd just hand it out early. So I'll read this this passage. This is from her book, um, True Presence. And I, I highly recommend the books of Tara Brock. She's amazing. When the Buddha was dying, he gave his final message to his beloved attendant Ananda and to generations to come. Be a lamp unto yourself. Be a refuge. Take yourself to no external refuge. In his last words, Buddha was urging us to see this truth. Although you may search the world over trying to find it, your ultimate refuge is none other than your own being. There's a bright light of awareness that shines through each of us and guides us home, and we're never separated from this luminous awareness any more than the waves are separated from the ocean. In fact, even when we feel most ashamed, lonely, reactive, confused, we're never actually apart from the awakened state of our heart-mind. This is a powerful and beautiful teaching. The Buddha was essentially saying, I'm not the only one with this light. All ordinary human beings have this essential wakefulness too. In fact, this open loving awareness is our deepest nature. We don't need to get somewhere or change ourselves. Our true refuge is what we are. Trusting this opens us to the blessing of freedom. Buddhist monk Sadawuyu Pandita described these blessings in a wonderful way, a heart that is ready for anything. When we trust we are the ocean, we are not afraid of the waves. We have confidence that whatever arises is workable. We don't have to lose our life in preparation. We don't have to defend against what's next. We are free to live fully with what is here and to respond wisely. You might ask yourself, can I imagine what it would be like in this moment to have a heart that is ready for anything? If our hearts are ready for anything, we can open to the inevitable losses and to the depths of our sorrow. We we can grieve our lost loves, our lost youth, our lost health, our lost capacities. This is part of our humanness, part of the expression of our love for life. As we bring a courageous presence to the truth of loss, we stay available to the immeasurable ways that love springs forth in our lives. If our hearts are ready for anything, we will spontaneously reach out when others are hurting. Living in an ethical way can attune us to the pain and needs of others, but when our hearts are open and awake, we care instinctively. This caring is unconditional. It extends outward and inward, wherever there is fear and suffering. If our hearts are ready for anything, we are free to be ourselves. There's room for the wildness of our animal selves, 
for passion and play. There's room for our human selves for intimacy, understanding, creativity, and productivity. There's room for spirit for the light of awareness to suffuse our moments. The Tibetans describe this confidence to be who we are as the lion's roar. If our hearts are ready for anything, we are touched by the beauty and poetry and mystery that fill our world. When Munidrachi, a Vipassana meditation teacher, was asked why he practiced, his response was, so I will see the tiny purple flowers by the side of the road as I walk to town every day. With an undefended heart, we can fall in love with life over and over every day. We can become children of wonder, grateful to be walking on the earth, grateful to belong with each other and to all creation. We can find our true refuge in each moment, in every breath. So first of all, I just wanted to share that because I think it's it's beautiful. In some way, that could be the whole Dharma talk right there. But um, it does raise the question, how do we get there? How do we get to this high ideal of a heart ready for anything? And I think there's there's lots of ingredients of that, but but a big one, I would say, is growing up. And this is something I've said before. I think if you consider the adults alive in America now, and I very much include myself as part of this, um, we're probably the most spoiled and immature group of adults that have ever walked the face of the earth, you know? And and I think there's many ways that this plays out. Um, one is just having such attachment to to what what we want, you know. The world should be giving me what I want, you know. I mean, we all carry this computer in our pocket, and we could order any product and have it show up the next day. Um, you know, we we will go into the the grocery store and it's like, well, I don't like that brand. I don't like the right brand. This is the only brand I like, you know? Um, and the funny thing about our time is not just food and products, it's worldviews. It, it's information. I'm only going to pay attention to the information that I like. I'm not going to pay attention to information I don't like. And we see this throughout our culture now. Um, I'm not going to have any tolerance for the information I don't like. You know, we see this playing out on all sides of the, the political spectrum. And even in my own life, I may go through life saying, you know, just tell me the things I want, you know, and if you're the kind of person who's going to tell me the things I don't want to hear, I'm not going to be friends with you, like this sort of thing. Um, and as I've talked about before, it it's tricky you know, the, the kinds of, of things that I don't want to hear. Of course, some of them might be abusive or insulting, but it's also true that often the feedback I most need to hear is the feedback I'm not really a fan of hearing, you know? Um, and that growth happens when I can make myself uncomfortable in the presence of these things. Um, you know, it's such a, we have such a culture of choosing, you know, everyone here is here voluntarily, you know, and if 
I said something that was too challenging or too triggering for someone, that person might never come back again, you know. Um, skilled therapists, you know, will spend time trying to persuade and cajole somebody to face the thing that they really don't want to face. But if, you know, at some level they, they really are just determined, I don't want to face that, they'll stop seeing that therapist, you know. It's very different in other times, you know, in some societies, people had gurus or they had, you know, the, you wouldn't question the priest or something like this. And, you know, if one of these spiritual teachers said, you need to face such and such, you know, it might be uncomfortable, but you'd feel like, all right, I have a duty to face such and such. And now, now really nobody has that sense of duty unless they're taking extraordinary responsibility for themselves, you know. And so that that is one way that that immaturity plays out. Um, just you know, don't tell me what I don't want to hear, kind of thing. Um, I'll I'll just say on that point. Um, some of you know that for years I was a member of a spiritual group called Kaf, C A F H. I've talked about it a few times. No one has ever heard of this group. Um, it's a South American path based on meditation. But one of the, the big things that I took from Kaf, uh, they, they valorize the importance of feedback in spiritual work. The whole idea that if I'm a spiritual person, like I might be seeing the face of the Buddha in meditation, but if I'm walking through the world and everyone thinks I'm a jerk, I'm not really a spiritual person, you know? That really, if I want to know, am I really living my ideals? I have to be inviting feedback as much as possible, you know, being curious about how I land with others and also inviting the opinions of others, you know, and they, you know, they would say, especially when you get, you know, unsolicited feedback, that can be pure gold in some ways, you know, you know, and sometimes it's about somebody else's triggering and doesn't have a lot to do with me, but, but even the most triggered kind of feedback, there's usually some grain of truth there for me, you know. Another way that that immaturity plays out is irresponsibility. Um, I mean, one way is with fantasy thinking. You know, how often do we indulge in fantasy thinking? How many times are we even genuinely surprised when the world turns out different from our fantasies? You know? And, and, you know, what does that say about us? I mean, that, that, that's age appropriate for like a five-year-old, you know, but, but we adults do this. Um, it's, uh, how can I say, you know, do I need, if I sense that something is true, is the kind of thing that I don't really believe until someone else confirms me. Yes, Mike, that is really true. Or, you know, or if something is troubling or challenging to, do, to me, I don't, I can't really feel good about myself until that that other person gives me the, you know, the assurance or the, you know, the the permission to do self care or something along these lines. You know, um, all these kind of codependent ways of seeking. You know. 
I need somebody else's attention, acceptance, approval, confirmation before I feel good about myself, you know. And I'll say all these things, attention, acceptance, approval, confirmation, I mean, they're wonderful things for for a healthy person. They're in the nice-to-have category, not the need-to-have category, you know. And it's funny with with codependence, you know, I, there, there are people that obviously, you know, codependence is a big pattern in their lives. But I think there's ways that all of us have a bit of codependence. And in some ways, it's even just part of the language, you know, the language of that person made me mad, made me sad, made me upset, you know. Essentially, I'm saying that person has agency over my internal states, you know. The the, the language of nonviolent communication is, is often, I feel much more honest around those things, you know. When you said that, I felt anger come up in me. So I'm, I'm fessing to the anger, but I'm claiming that, it, you know, I'm identifying it as my own, not as something, you know, you made me angry, you know, kind of thing. The truth is we're, we're deeply responsible for our, our emotional states, you know, and to take that kind of deep responsibility. Um, we're also deeply responsible for our own capacity. I, I talked about capacity a couple of weeks ago. Um, we're responsible for doing the work that, that grows our capacity over time. You know, and all these are part of of stepping into the maturity of life. So, so part of having a heart ready for anything is this kind of growing up and taking our 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 responsible adult place in the world. Um, but another big part of it is about letting go, allowing, surrendering. Um, and this is a gigantic challenge to our control issues. Um, and again, I would say, yeah, there are some people that have, you know, have massive control issues, but I think we all have some control issues, you know? And often, often when we're just in the world doing our thing, we're not even aware of our control issues. We're not aware until they're interrupted or they're challenged or something like this, you know? I'll, I'll just say in my own life, it's, it's kind of a, how can I say, I found I got a free up close and personal course in my control issues when I started to lose function in my hands, you know. Control issues are rooted in the second chakra. The second chakra is how we relate to the watery aspect of life, the aspect of life that is in uncontrollable flow. You know, can we be totally at peace with the uncontrollable flow? Or do we need to, like, bottle it up? You know, this kind of thing. So to be in that place of deeply responsible, deeply responsible for myself, yet totally comfortable with letting go and with the, you know, at peace with the uncontrollable flow of life, I would say that's very much the lion's roar. That's very much what what Tara Brock was talking about. Um, 
I'll name another part of, of the heart ready for anything. This is a distinction I've made a few times, what I call small-minded fear, small-minded courage versus large-hearted courage. Small-minded courage means I'm going to be courageous up to what I think my limits are. You know, I think I know my limits. I'm going to be courageous up to my limits. Large-hearted courage is much more expansive. Large-hearted courage is rooted in this recognition, of course I don't know my limits. You know, of course we're all much more powerful, much more resourceful than we give ourselves credit for. You know, and so risking ourselves more, you know, not in a reckless way, um, but more in a way that's in line with our deep knowing rather than with what our neurotic head tells us we should be doing, you know. And the truth is, we all have the capacity to face whatever life hands us. We might not like it, but we have the capacity to face it, you know. And trusting that is trusting the heart that is ready for anything. So at this point, I'll share, I'll read the the rest of the quotes on the quote sheet. The the top quote is by Mengzi, also known as Mencius. Mencius is known in Chinese tradition as the second sage, the the number two guy in the Confucian tradition after Confucius. He's, He's the person who really added a heart quality to the entire Confucius tradition. I'm a big fan of Mencius. So this quote, so it is that whenever invests a person with great responsibilities, first it tries his resolve, exhausts his muscles and bones, starves his body, leaves him destitute, and confounds his every endeavor. In this way, his patience and endurance are developed, and his weaknesses are overcome. You know, and it's just, it's a fascinating quote, because when we're clobbered by life, and all kinds of bad things and challenges are piling up in front of us, you know, do we go to the place of victim status? You know, why is this happening to me? You know, which is, again, very much the, the child's approach. Or do we recognize we're actually being prepared for something greater? This is something that's actually calling us out to step into a greater part of ourselves, you know. And that, that's what I find really inspiring in the Mencius quote. From E.E. E. Cumming, I imagine that yes is the only living thing. It astounds me sometimes how poets can say something so profound in so few words. Helen Keller said quite practically, character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through the experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, ambition inspired, and success achieved. Anais Nin said quite simply, Life shrinks or expands in proportion to one's courage. Theodore Geisel, who's also known as Dr. Seuss, said, Be who you are and say what you feel, because those who mind don't matter, and those who matter don't mind. (laughs) Joseph Campbell said quite simply, "When When you are required to exhibit strength, it comes. 
That 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 is just that would be a great one just to reread every day. A long quote from Charlotte Joko Beck, the Zen teacher. We're here to get our present model repainted a little. If the car of our life is deep gray, we want to turn it lavender or pink. But transformation means the car may disappear altogether. Maybe instead of a car, it will be a turtle. We don't even want to hear of such possibilities. We hope the teacher will tell us something that will fix our present model. A lot of therapies provide techniques for improving the model. They tinker here and there, and we may even feel a lot better. Still, that is not transformation. Transformation arises from a willingness to develop very slowly over time to be what life asks of us. Most of us, myself included at times, are like children. We want something or somebody to give us what a small child wants from his parents. We want to be given peace, attention, comfort, understanding. If our life doesn't give us this, we think a few years of Zen practice will do this for me. No, they won't. That's not what practice is about. Practice is about opening ourselves so that this little eye that wants and wants and wants and wants, that wants the whole world to be its parents, really, grows up. Thich Nhat Hanh says, Fearlessness is not only possible, it is the ultimate joy. When you touch non-fear, you are free. And really, that the more I understand it, the the place of Bodhi, the place of pure awareness, is a place of non-fear. Not that I occupy that place with any consistent regularity, but that is my sense of it. Um, the Dalai Lama said, the period of greatest pain, gain in your knowledge and experience is the most difficult period in one's life. Through a difficult period, you can learn. You can develop inner strength, determination, and the courage to face problems. The writer Michael Gruber said, but it turns out that people who are grounded and secure don't change much under stress. That's what being grounded means. Jack Cornfield said, grief and loss and suffering, even depression and spiritual crisis, the dark nights of the soul, only worsen when we try to ignore or deny or avoid them. The healing journey begins when we turn toward them and learn how to work with them. When we stop fighting against our difficulties and find the strength to meet our demons and difficulties head on, we often find that we emerge from our difficulties stronger and humbler and more grounded than we were before we experienced them. To survive our difficulties is to be initiated into the fraternity of wisdom. And finally, Marion Williamson, now presidential candidate, says, Something amazing happens when we surrender and just love. We melt into another world, a realm of power already with us, within us. The world changes when we change. The world softens when we soften. The world loves us when we choose to love the world. 